And so I learned while researching this book that Abraham Lincoln was a man Let of- me guess. A man of great contradictions. Well, are you expecting me to congratulate you on making a lucky guess? Okay, then. An undistinguished soldier who became a peerless military leader. A great emancipator who had thousands of Americans arrested without trial. A closet homosexual who had many romantic attachments to women. And in summation, a fascinating subject for a biography. Do I pretty much have it, Dr. Nair? If you know so much about him, why do you even want a signed first edition of my book, Abraham Lincoln, An American Life? For my personal Lincoln library. I work for the Springfield Board of Tourism, and Abe is the reason I don't have to conduct a convicted Governors of Illinois tour. He freed a lot of people. Amen. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for People Who Can't Afford Hamilton. Today, Part 1 of a two-part episode for President 16, Abraham Lincoln. We want to thank you for being a fan of DB Comedy Presents The Electables. We think even more people would enjoy our show. And if you agree, can you help us? Here's how. Whenever you download one of our episodes, make sure you like us. Add those stars, give us a review, recommend it to your friends. The algorithms of your local podcast download shop will appreciate it, and we at DB Comedy will as well. So enjoy this episode, and bring your friends so they can too. As seems to be befitting one of the titans of the American presidency, we sort of have an episode of historians versus comedians today with about the same number of historians to chat with us as there are DB comedy writers, which is exciting. So I'm just going to first ask our uh, sort of in-house historians to introduce themselves to the audience. I am Dr. Chelsea Denault, and I am a public historian in Michigan. All right. Hi, I'm uh, Mr. James McCray, and I am a public school teacher. I teach uh, high school and middle school social studies. Awesome. And we are all here with another special guest because as we said, Abe Lincoln is a Titan. So we deserve someone that knows a whole lot about Lincoln. And we have someone that came with a strong recommendation and I'll be giving thank yous to those two in a moment. Sure. I am Dr. Matthew Norman. I'm an associate professor of history at the University of Cincinnati Blue Ash College. And I specialize in the Civil War, Reconstruction, and Abraham Lincoln. Yay. So again, thank you for coming. And on the air, I also want to thank a mutual friend of Paul and ours, Jennifer Gallus at Knox College, who, along with Sarah Bird, said that Dr. Norman would be perfect for this. And you're about to find out what this is all about. Speaking of Paul, Joe, why don't we introduce the rest of the comedians, too? Yes, on, on Team Comedian, there's me, Joe. You hear me. Me, Paul, the other friend of Jennifer. Me, Sandy. Me, Tommy. 
and I, Patrick. There you go. <laughs> Patrick's our I kind of class. I love it. <laughs> so to jump off, and you're going to notice, by the way, that we may suggest a couple ideas for some sketches that we have in the bag. But before we get to that, as we were talking amongst the DB comedians about whether we should have, we should try to find somebody new, Sandy came up with an interesting question that I think I'd like Sandy to ask to kind of get the whole thing started. Well, as we were approaching this, I mean, we've we've had so much fun with all the obscure presidents, and Abraham Lincoln is is such an icon. I was wondering, as we were going into this, you've been doing the sketches and are talking to you historians, I would like to focus on what we already don't know about Abraham Lincoln. We could talk about all the things that he is famous for, but let's let's dig up some of the obscure stuff. So anybody, anybody who's welcome to start, what don't we yet know? What don't we know about Lincoln? Obviously, we know a lot about Lincoln, but I guess what I would say is that every generation has to write its own history. And, and the way that we look at Lincoln today, I think, is influenced by our surroundings. And it, it will be obviously very different than the way people in the 1950s or the 1930s or the 1890s looked at Lincoln. So how true are all the apocryphal stories about him, like walking miles to borrow a book or the, you know, I, honest Abe kinds of stuff? I think the one that I, I always liked was they used to say he, uh, the the log cabin he was born in in Kentucky only had three walls. <laughs> they were so they were so poor they only had three walls. <laughs> and that's that's, that's actually what I was going to ask. So you know I. I'm not a Lincoln expert. I'm not even a 19th century historian. Come on, I study post-war urban and environmental history. So like, who am I even right now? <laughs> um, but when, in, when I did have to take my requisite 19th century history class, you know, in graduate school, you know, the, the I guess the Lincoln that we were taught was much less about Lincoln, the moral, opposer to slavery and much more Lincoln, the Whiggish free enterprise, you know, not even pragmatist, but, but by espousing those very strong free enterprise, everyone should have the chance to work free and for their own land and for their own profit. Lincoln, the American, the Heritage Foundation endorsed president. Yeah, or like Lincoln, like Lincoln the, like, the Andrew pull, Johnson. Yeah. Or like Lincoln, <laughs> pull yourself up by your bootstraps, mm-hmm. right? Like, and and that's not to say that maybe it's again, it's not uh, a combination of these things, right? Like, I'm sure he had morals, um, <laughs> but at the same time, it it's so interesting to me that that uh, that that argument, you know, the the free enterprise uh, Lincoln was an argument that I hadn't I hadn't heard before graduate school and. Um, I thought it was really interesting and compelling. Well, and I think that that can go hand in hand with his views on slavery, because he talks about, in fact, I think the phrase that he uses is a, as a person's right to rise. And Lincoln did that. Lincoln embodied that. He started with nothing. He had very little formal education, but he was able to rise. He became president of the United States. And so he talked about removing 
the weights off of people's shoulders so that everyone would have an equal chance. And of course, slavery is the antithesis of that. Um, well, let's, I wonder if we can, let's start maybe almost to the start and then continue on. Cause it's one of the, like, here's something kind of interesting. I think there are at least two, if not more states that claim to have been the birthplace of Lincoln because Illinois sort of does. Kentucky definitely does. I visited the site personally. And I think yeah, everyone wants to paint Bill Lincoln. Yeah. Um, so where the hell was he born? Well, Kentucky. he was born in Kentucky. He was born in Kentucky. So yeah. did his family move, move, was his family kind of itinerant? Kind of. They, they uh, moved to Indiana where Lincoln spent much of his boyhood. And then when- Did you claim up to, Tommy? No, I know. We do refer to ourselves as Lincoln's boyhood home, which is, I think, a way of admitting, like, we're neither where he was born nor where he became important. Lincoln transition state. Yeah. Indiana's like that, you know. Everyone important from here is important for leaving. Yeah. And to get anywhere good, you will go through Indiana quickly. <laughs> oh, the Indiana Toll Road is one of the best just of just driving through that there is. I can assure you that. Anyway. You, you didn't want to stay long. We made it easy to get out. <laughs> he starts in Kentucky. His, uh, they buy a farm in Indiana, don't they? Yeah. Young Abe is not fond of farm work, as I recall. He was not. Uh, and. Uh, he had kind of a troubled relationship with his father. Uh, I think Lincoln was, was interested really in bettering himself and wanted to be more than a manual laborer. And I don't think his father ever really understood that. How long did his father live? His father, let's see, his father died, uh, it was in the 1840s, uh, right? 1851. Okay, there you go, 1851. It was right... Yeah, right as Lincoln's uh, brief term in Congress ended. And, and he had a very close relationship with his stepmother. His mother died young, and he had a close relationship with his stepmother, as I recall. He liked his stepmother very much, and he went to visit her right before he became president. But he gets a very interesting letter from one of his cousins when his father is dying, informing Lincoln that his father is dying, and, and Lincoln doesn't go back to, to say goodbye to his father. And I think that's evidence of this troubled relationship that he and his father had. Which seems like a through line with a few presidents, certainly some modern presidents. I mean, Clinton, Obama, um, Biden, you hear Trump. I mean, that I, that's a really... Who doesn't really have modern, a bad relationship well, with Satan, though? Well, that's true. But I, I wonder if that, I mean, hmm, again, we are not counterfactual psychologists. We are counterfactual would be historian, so we don't have to muse about that too much. But we don't have to, but we will. Oh sure. Well uh, <laughs> privately though. Right. So okay, so they're bouncing around. He clearly decides he's not going to be of the earth. Uh, wants to better himself. Is that why he gravitates towards being an attorney or being a politician or does one follow the other or is both kind of hand in hand? Politics came first. Well, they, they happen at, uh, at almost uh, at the same time. He, you know, Lincoln moved out 
as soon as he could when he was 21. And, you know, he was a failed businessman, but he served in the Black Hawk War in 1832. And uh, I think that was an important influence on him. And there he met some people, some of whom he'll be friends with for the rest of his life. And he, he is, you know, he's self-taught and he starts reading law on his own and becomes a lawyer, uh, runs for his first political office in 1832 at the end of the Black Hawk War. And he fails to get elected to the Illinois General Assembly. But then he runs again a couple years later and is successful, becomes a lawyer and is actually a very successful attorney. Uh, moves to Springfield and marries uh, a woman from a pretty well-off Lexington, Kentucky family. Well, Lincoln, Lincoln becomes middle class. He married up and uh, is very interested in politics, is very ambitious. Well, that, okay. So, so again, what made, I guess I'm returning to my returning. Um, what made Lincoln a good attorney or what was a good, what did, what did good attorneys do in that day and age? Well, I mean, there's there was a project in Springfield that collected every scrap of paper pertaining to Lincoln's legal practice. And, and they published all this on CD-ROMs about, well, it's been nearly 20 years. It's amazing how fast time flies. But uh, when people hear lawyer and law practice, they think of dramatic courtroom episodes where he's defending people on murder charges and things. And that happened once in a while. But most of Lincoln's law practice was pretty mundane that dealt with contracts and property. The judges and the attorneys would ride circuit together. Yes. Throughout the year. So, you know, the guy you're sharing a bed with is the guy who's going to be uh, turning, who's going to be denying your motion the next day. So you better not have really bad gas before bedtime, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And there are funny stories of all these guys uh, sleeping together on the circuit, traveling from courthouse to courthouse. And, and I think Lincoln liked that. I think he, he liked, he liked being around other, other young guys and, uh, you know, telling stories. He had a talent for that. And as far as being a successful attorney, he he won a lot of cases and he ended up representing corporations, railroads. And that's where the big money was. So he was and you can see this if you go to Springfield and visit his home. I mean, they have a very nice middle class home that they added to over the years in Springfield. So so um, one of my one of my favorite stories, uh, because I wrote a sketch about it. Back in his Illinois days, and maybe because we're in Illinois and we know to this day Illinois politics are just fraught with insanity, was the episode of running, jumping out of the window yeah. to avoid, basically to try to prevent a bill from passing that was going to pass no matter what. Yeah, yeah, and that the defenestration. Yeah, he he did that to try and avoid a, a quorum having a, the necessary members present to take a vote on that. And he gets pilloried in the Democratic newspapers for this. They, they really have a field day making fun of Lincoln jumping out the window to try and avoid this quorum call. <laughs> Where are you, you dumb kite? Fly! Fly! Sounds like there's a ruckus going on in that building. Sounds like folks are angry. 
Wonder what they're arguing about. Uh, Ooh, oh, 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 so sorry, dear boy. Get off me. Uh, you aren't hurt, are you, lad? You broke my kite. Well, I, I'm sorry. I shall replace it. Why are you jumping out of a window, sir? Well, my name is Abraham. I'm Georgie. Why are you jumping out of a window, Abraham? I'm stopping a quorum. A quorum? A quorum. Mr. Lincoln! Oh, no. Run! Run? Uh, behind that tree! Ah! Mr. Lincoln! Mr. Lincoln! You cannot stop the work of the legislature! The legislature? A place where laws are made. <gasps> so you're a politician? Shush! Come out, come out, wherever you are. Dad thinks politicians are worse than snakes. Who goes there? Uh, be behind the bushes! Oh. Oh. It's running and hiding something politicians do all the time? Sometimes that's part of the job. Why? A bad law was about to be passed and I wanted to stop it. Oh, that's terrible. What law? The legislature wants to close the state bank and we don't want to. Mr. Lincoln, please! To keep the state bank open, we must stop the legislature. By hiding behind some bushes? Yes, now quiet. Otherwise they'll find us. I don't know, Mr. Abraham. Mr. Lincoln, come out from behind that bush. Uh, they found us. You and your hat are really easy to see behind this bush, Mr. Abraham. Well, we need to run. Oh, uh, back to the now. You should go. To the outhouse. What? <laughs> this stinks. Of course it stinks. It's an outhouse. You jumped out of a quorum window so the legislature don't get a quorum and then hide in an outhouse just so you don't close up, right? Uh, that is indeed the case. Speaker Lincoln, I am deputized by the legislature of the state of Illinois to bring you back to the House to complete its legislative session for the day. Come with me, please. Uh, I guess this is the end of the road. I hope so. A pleasure meeting you, Georgie. What's going to happen now? Well, I'll go back to the meeting and the bank will close. Sir? Sir! At least you tried. Thank you, Sergeant. Come this way. Pleasure to meet you, Georgie. Can you make sure this fine young man gets a new kite after the meeting? Legislatures are stupid. Jumping out of windows and jumping into poop houses and the bank gets closed anyway. <laughs> Daddy's right. That hayseed will never amount to nothing. Where's my new kind? So there's there's a lot of speculation about what, what's in Lincoln's head. And we know a lot of this because Lincoln's last law partner, William Herndon, he interviewed, after Lincoln's death, Herndon became kind of nauseated by all the hagiography that was coming out. 
And Herndon said, well, I knew Lincoln. And uh, what I'm reading in all these biographies isn't the real Lincoln. And Herndon did something that historians ever since have been trying to do, which is to get at the real Lincoln. And Herndon did that by interviewing people who knew Lincoln. And one of Lincoln's best friends, in fact, I think the best friend that Lincoln ever had was Joshua Speed. And, and Herndon interviews Speed. And, and this is where we get some of the details about this period in Lincoln's life, where Speed says that he had to take Lincoln's razor away from him. That's how worried he was. Wow. About maybe Lincoln taking his own life. Was it something that was isolated to just that era, or does it carry through as he goes to Congress, runs against Douglas, and eventually becomes president? Yeah, I, I mean, there are biographers who argue that this is that this kind of melancholy, as it was known, is 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 just part of Lincoln's personality. I and very distinctly re recall one of I, I'm sure we'll get to the second inaugural at some point, but I very distinctly recall my high school history teacher telling us about how after the second inaugural, Walt Whitman specifically does not go and greet Lincoln because he looks like too moody. And Whitman's like, no, that's okay. Too moody for Walt Whitman. Huh? Wow. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, Lincoln was a, uh, you know, he was a rising star in the Whig party. He was a successful attorney and uh, he, he was, Seemingly headed in the right direction, but he also had a lot of setbacks in his political life. Would some of those setbacks involve being in the Illinois legislature? I think that, you know, the, the eight years that he spent in the Illinois legislature were, were pretty successful. It's when he goes to the national stage. He only served one term in Congress. And if you look at his congressional career, he only made a couple of speeches in Congress. Doesn't make... The spot resolutions. The, the spot, yes. He's, uh, he's notorious in Illinois for introducing what were these, the so-called spot resolutions, which were in opposition to the Mexican war. That was the big issue when Lincoln was in Congress. And Lincoln took a very controversial position for Illinois Whigs. The Mexican war was very popular in Illinois. And a lot of Whigs, including a political associate of Lincoln's named Hardin, Hardin went off and served in the Mexican war and was killed. But Lincoln took this controversial stance where he opposed President Polk's war. And the spot resolution was a resolution demanding to know the spot on which American blood had been shed on American soil. And that, that comes from the message that President Polk had delivered to Congress, asking Congress for a declaration of war. President Polk said, American blood has been shed on American soil. And Lincoln says, well, you know, where's the spot? Show me the spot on American soil where American blood was shed. And that was not a popular position in Illinois. When Lincoln left office, he was hoping to get a nice patronage appointment under the new Taylor administration, but that, that didn't work out. And he returned to Illinois. I think historians who claim that Lincoln retired from politics exaggerate. He was still active, but he was largely concentrating on his law practice. Now, you know, he gave a, a very good eulogy of Henry Clay in Springfield during the so-called retirement period. But it, it really isn't until the Kansas-Nebraska Act that Lincoln says this aroused him unlike anything else that had ever happened in his life where he really becomes energized and goes out speaking against Douglas in the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 18... 18... Which seems slightly insulting to Mary Todd, but... 
Yes. <laughs> and that's the, that's the word he uses. And uh, when I talk about it in class, I, I, I wince a little bit because if it were me in the class and my professor said that, I'd be snickering too. <laughs> now, if I can ask though, why did, and this is going to make you happy too, Chelsea, why did Abraham Lincoln choose Henry Clay as a political idol? Oh my gosh, you guys know that I love, hate Henry Clay. <laughs> As does Paul. I can't wait. I can't wait until we do the um, Henry Clay perennial loser episode. That's what I'm really looking forward to. So why did Abraham uh, admire such a loser? Well, Lincoln uh, was a Whig, and Henry Clay was leader of the Whig Party, and I think ideologically. Lincoln identified with Clay's principles. Clay was a proponent of what was called the American system, a strong federal government, high protective tariff, national bank, government funded internal improvements, what we would today call infrastructure. Lincoln agreed with all of those things. And uh, Clay, while a Kentucky slaveholder, uh, was at least oratorically opposed to slavery and talked about the Declaration of Independence and how he would like to see Kentucky gradually abolish slavery. Of course, Kentucky never did that. But I think when you look at Lincoln, even as he's emerging as a national political figure and during his presidency, you see a lot of Henry Clay in him. Yeah. When did Henry Clay leave the House of Representatives? Why or when? Because he when? was, he, well, he was in the House on a, on a couple of different occasions. And... Uh, well, he, he originally left to become the Secretary of State for John Quincy Adams as part of the so-called corrupt bargain. Right. Which I just I was wondering if it, his, his house tenure must not have intersected Lincoln's oh, term in the house. Yeah, I, let's see. Lincoln was there from 47 to 49. Now, Clay, I think, was in the Senate by then. Clay, of course, was also a champion of the Union. And I think that's very important in understanding... Abraham Lincoln. So now, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln was a, he was pretty much uh, always a supporter of a strong central government. Yes. Was it also sort of a comedy theme thing in that Clay was short and Lincoln was tall? <laughs> that <laughs> was the case, Joe. He would have teamed up with Stephen Douglas and they would have had a oh killer act. Absolutely. They could have done like did. a ventriloquist thing. It'd be great. <laughs> but according to, according to my research, he never met his idol. Saw him speak once. Saw him speak, but I, whether they actually shook hands, I don't. I don't think there's any evidence of that. So we can write a counterfactual sketch in which they get uh, get together and drink. Although I think, yeah. For near and for dear ones, for old and for young. Is this the Congressional Office of Young Abraham Lincoln? Why, uh, yes, it is, sir. And and if my eyes don't deceive me, it's being visited by old, I, I mean, Henry Clay. You can say old Henry Clay, boy. I've been in politics since you were a lump in your daddy's drawers. Uh, yes, yes, of course. Uh, pardon me for not offering my hand, but sir, but I'm afraid it's trembling too much. Why, Junior? Too much whiskey? Or not enough? Neither, sir. Just an attack of nerves upon meeting a hero. You are my beau ideal of a politician, Mr. Clay. Really? Do you admire my rapier-like wit? My mastery of the art of compromise? 
or my devotion to the Union. All that plus your resilience, sir. I should hope to be half as resolute in the face of so many defeats. The price of being a Whig. I suppose you're wondering why I'm visiting the halls of Congress at this late hour. Uh, Speaker Winthrop's office is uh, two doors down, sir. That's good to know, but why are you telling me? I, I assume you wanted to ask directions. Don't be so modest, boy. Why, as soon as I entered the house, I asked, Has anybody here seen my old friend Abe? <laughs> but, Mr. Clay, we, we've never met. Some of my best friends are people I've never met. But why would a former congressman, senator, and cabinet secretary seek out a freshman congressman from Illinois? To thank that freshman congressman for fighting like a wildcat to get me elected president in 1844. My only regret is that my efforts were in vain. My only regret is that I said yes to that dreadful campaign, did a hurrah, hurrah, the nation's rising. With Henry Clay and Frailing Hoisin. I, I thought it a fine song, sir. Are you in Washington to announce you'll be a candidate next year? No, I'm in Washington to reassure all potential rivals that I won't be a candidate next year. But don't you always say that before you run? And I always mean it. Anyway, a little Whig told me that Illinois' favorite son, who isn't a dwarf named Stephen Douglas, is planning a speech opposing this wretched Mexican war that's killed some of our finest young men. I was sorry to hear of Henry Jr.'s passing, sir. Not as sorry as that bastard Polk will be when you stick a skewer through him and roast him on a spit. Rhetorically, of course. May I hear what you have so far? Uh, of course, uh, sir. Here's my latest draft, inspired by the season. <clears throat> and so this is Christmas, for weak and for strong, for rich and for poor ones. The war is so long. What have you done? No one cares about Christmas, Lincoln. It's barely even a holiday. What else have you got? Well, uh, perhaps you'll prefer this earlier version. <clears throat> war. <laughs> what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Good God, Lincoln. With speeches like that, you can measure your political career for the undertaker. Uh, all right, all right. Uh, here's another idea. <clears throat> Some people are born made to wave the flag. They are red, white, and blue. You're fortunate, son, that I prevented you from saying that. What's, the, what's this on your desk that you crossed out here? Something about the, the Mexican right to, to self-determination? Oh, uh, uh, any people anywhere have the right to rise up and shake off the existing government and form a new one that suits them better. I discarded that, sir, for fear of sounding supportive of Southerners who threatened to secede. Lad, the South has threatened to secede once a week since the nullification crisis in 1832. It's an empty threat on which they'll never deliver. Anyway, I like it. As a founder of the Whig Party, I insist you say that on the House floor. Why don't we oppose Polk with a series of spot resolutions? Shall I order a terrier to attack the president, sir? No mongrel would risk cannibalism by taking a bite out of James K. Polk. I mean, challenge Polk to prove that the spot on which American blood was first spilled was U.S. territory. Put Polk on the spot, and that'll hit the spot. Sir, I don't want to be known as Spotty Lincoln. You won't be. Are you quite sure, Mr. Clay? Have I ever been wrong, Lincoln? Well, yes, sir, m many times. But I'm not this time. The world will little note nor long remember your career, Lincoln. If you don't introduce the spot resolution, it's your duty as a Whig. And I am nothing if not a loyal Henry Clay Whig. Always have been and always shall be. The spot resolutions it is. With young men like you in our ranks, the future of the Whig party is bright indeed. 
Now let's write a barn burner speech that'll stop this war. All we're saying is give peace a chance. He toured the country for Henry Clay in 1844. Well, and what's, what's, what's funny about Lincoln is that as much as he liked Clay, Lincoln understood that the, the, the primary purpose of politics is to win elections. And Lincoln was part of a faction when he was in Congress that supported Zachary Taylor for the presidency instead of Henry Clay, <laughs> because Clay, Clay by that time had run uh, and failed. And run and run. Yeah. And, and Taylor was this, this hero of the Mexican War, which Lincoln had opposed. And yet Lincoln saw in Taylor someone who was electable and was willing to kind of cast Clay aside in order to get a Whig elected president. And, and Taylor, of course, did win. I, I assume you've already done an episode on Taylor. I don't know what, what people just said. Re- uh, we've just released it at the time of this recording. So oh, okay. You're welcome to, you're welcome to hop. Yeah, because we, we also, well, we also talked about something that we may touch upon later in this episode as well. Uh, Mary Todd Lincoln and mysticism, because that was very much a part of the Taylor presidency with his wife and his late, uh, one of his late children. Okay. So that was Pierce. Yeah, Pierce. Oh, Pierce. I'm sorry. Oh, Pierce. Well, well, yeah, Pierce is, yeah, they had this horrific train accident, right? Mm-hmm. Pierce became president. And Little Benny died. Benny died. And, and Pierce wrote a, a very nice letter to Lincoln. Oh, after, really? Yeah, after, um, after uh, Willie died. Willie died in the White House. Did you know Here's that? Sandy? There. Did you know that about Lincoln? Yes, we knew that. That's <laughs> one of the common things that we. There's a whole novel about it now, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> I have a I question for Dr. Time. Norman then. Yeah. yeah. Which is how did uh, how did Lincoln's political views form? I mean, it's it seems it seems unlikely that somebody with his background would come to be a Whig with, you know, a belief in a, you know, strong central government and all this stuff, since he had been such a kind of up from his bootstraps, made it himself kind of guy, how did he come to hold these political views? And and, and the enterprise, oh, sorry. I was going to say just as sort of a tag along question to that is you said that he made a reputation as being a good lawyer. And it's one of the things that caught Mary Todd's eye. What constituted a good lawyer in that day and age? And again, did it again? It sounds like it all wove together anyway. So hopefully, you can get James' question answered there too. I think that um, I mean there there are a lot of different theories about why Lincoln gravitated toward the Whig Party as opposed to the Democrat Party. I mean, if you want to be really cynical, uh, there weren't many Whigs in Illinois, and right, that, you know, there was a lot of a lot more opportunity to rise in that party to become right. prominent in that party than in the in the Democrat party, which was much more crowded. But I think that Lincoln, I think Lincoln liked this idea of a, of a strong central government and a government that um, funded infrastructure. You know, Lincoln is our only president to have a patented invention. And it was a device to uh, help- Did Jefferson not patent anything? What's that? Did Jefferson not patent any of his inventions? No, I don't think he did. Oh, well. Maybe he should have, but he didn't. (laughs) He was busy. (laughs) Well, his invention was to help uh, elevate boats that were stuck in the rivers. 
Oh. Help lift them off and get wow. them. Wow. I love it. Um. So it's fairly well known. Uh, Mary Todd and Abe had a not the best marriage. Uh, they had their issues uh, even beyond all of their children dying. Uh, what did she see in, in young Abe that uh, made her marry down to, to bring this gangly young lawyer into society? Uh, well, I, I mean, this is just speculation, but I think that she saw in him that ambition I was talking about. That, you know, this was a guy who was on the rise. Uh, so, we, so we don't have like some steamy uh, letters <laughs> where he's talking no. about his stovepipe hat or anything. <laughs> no, nothing like that. Uh, so she's sorry. probably one of the few people then that saw him as overseeing Stephen Douglas, who was far more well-known and popular at that time. And right. was also a suitor for her. Right. Uh, yeah, they were, they were, uh, yeah, the, Lincoln and Douglas had been rivals really since the 1830s. Lincoln was a Henry Clay Whig and Douglas was a Jackson Democrat. I want and a Henry Clay Whig in Halloween next year. <laughs> uh, I guess I've known. Have you seen his hair, Paul? It's terrible. <laughs> you seen this, Patrick? Not That's that much true. better. <laughs> Welcome to the 1860 race to the presidency. I'm Paula Pundit. And I'm Connie Commenter. Well, Connie, things are certainly heating up between the Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas and former Whig Congressman, now Republican, Abraham Lincoln. How can Lincoln, with only a single term and no name recognition, possibly compete? Well, Douglas is clearly the front runner, the great compromiser. He can appease both sides of this increasingly fractious nation. In fact, there he is on the Senate floor, hobnobbing with powerful South Carolina Senator John Calhoun. Calhoun is motioning Douglas to sit by him. <clears throat> Why? Rather than taking the chair beside him, Douglas just plopped onto Calhoun's lap. <laughs> Little giant does have a habit of sitting on men's laps. <laughs> they don't find that a little... Odd. Oh, heavens no. They find it rather endearing. He's like a tiny lap dancer. And he's hoping to make it rain with his fiscal policies. Uh, oh, here comes Mr. Lincoln. Let's listen in. Senator Calhoun. Ah, uh, Mr. Douglas. Good morning, Abe. Why, Senator Calhoun, that's impressive. I never saw your lips move. Very funny, Abe. The senator and I were just having a friendly chat. You know, Lincoln, it wouldn't hurt you to try lightening up and becoming a little uh, chummier with uh, the members of Congress. Perhaps you're right. Hey, Senator, mind if I sit with you? Uh, not at all. I... <laughs> oh, damn it, Lincoln. Ow, ow, my knees. Uh, get off, get off! <laughs> I, I do apologize, Senator. I, I was just trying to... Uh... Oh, what a buffoon! <laughs> Did he really think that that large, gangly frame will accommodate the laps of these gentlemen? The way that he does is Clearly, Lincoln shouldn't emulate Douglas in all aspects. He'll have a hard time filling those tiny shoes. But he would do well to follow Mr. Douglas's political path in other areas. His extremist stance on slavery, for instance, will certainly not win him any friends in the South. 
nor with his aligning with an untried, radical new political party. And that just doesn't play well with voters. They want the stability of traditional parties. It's true that the Whigs are dying and the splintering factions of the know-nothing nativist and abolitionists have all kind of latched onto this new-fangled Republican Party, but it'll never last. Third parties never do. Remember how well it worked for John Freeman in 56? <laughs> yeah. And the South absolutely loads him. Mark my words, Paula. The South will quit the Union before they ever allow a Republican to become president. Seriously, what makes Lincoln think he can compete with others? Or even Breckenridge for Bell? His candidacy is almost laughable. It's a vanity race. The best you can hope for are protest votes from fringe voters. He's a second-rate lawyer, a yokel politician, an extremist. Douglas is a de-establishment politician. A moderate who can capture the middle of the road voters are tired of the polarizing divisiveness of today's politics. He certainly has campaigned harder than any politician in the history of this country. He's traveled across the entire nation. Unprecedented. What a brilliant strategy. Douglas is a household name. Lincoln will be nothing more than a footnote in the history books. Abe, do you hear what those pundits say about you? Give it up, friend. Well, Stephen, I may not be the most well-known, or the most popular, or the most connected, nor well-funded, nor the best-looking candidate. But... But what? Well, there's usually a rebuttal to that kind of preface. Oh, no. But <laughs> I just have a hunch that popularity is not all you need to win an election. Perhaps you need a, a higher platform to stand on, Stephen. But I... Oh, is that another short joke? Uh, not at all. I just mean that there's more to politics than politics. Sometimes a leader must take a moral stand, even if it loses him some supporters. Yes, Connie. Just another maverick that thinks he can buck the establishment. Good luck with that. Next week, we'll talk with the other Democratic candidate, Southern Democrat John C. Breckinridge and the Constitutional Union candidate John Bell, both of whose campaigns should be taken far more seriously. How can voters decide? There's just so many choices. This is Connie Commenter. And I'm Paula Pundit. We'll keep you up to date on this exciting campaign. This has been the 1860 Race to the Presidency. I do have a, have a, since Joe did, you know, bring you on, uh, mentioning your uh, work in, count, in counterfactual histories here. Um, the 1860 election is is famous for a number of reasons, but largely because it could be argued that James Buchanan saved the Union by being petty and not letting Stephen Douglas, uh, not not supporting Stephen Douglas. So there were three Democratic candidates running to the point where Lincoln uh, didn't even bother campaigning in the South and didn't win a single vote. And wasn't even in the ballots. In the Do South. you think, uh, Dr. Norman, mm -hmm. which, which of the three uh, candidates in 1860 for the, de for the, uh, the Democrats 
um, Stephen Douglas for the, the National Democratic Party, uh, John Bell for the Constitutional Union, and John Breckinridge for the Southern Democrats. Do you think any of those three, if they had been running by themselves, would have uh, beaten Lincoln? No, I don't. In, in the national election? No, I don't think so. And I don't think that that was really uh, Buchanan's fault. <laughs> The, the fact is that the Democrats split in 1860 over the issue of slavery. And Douglas, to his credit, Douglas was a man of principle. They just aren't principles that we necessarily agree with today. But Douglas was a champion of popular sovereignty. And he believed that the white people who settled the federal territories had the right to decide the issue for themselves as to whether they would have slaves or not. But because of the, the Dred Scott decision that the Supreme Court issued in 1857, uh, Southern slaveholders and their supporters demanded more guarantees, more protections from the federal government. And this, I think, completely gives lie to this idea that the Civil War was about states' rights. Because the Democratic Party split in 1860 because uh, so the Southern faction and, and some of their Northern Doe-Face supporters they wanted a federal law protecting slavery in the territories. Well, that and, uh, and I believe Virginia and several of the other states in their Articles of Secession say the reason we're seceding is because of slavery. Well, they all say that. Yes, they, they're all, <laughs> yeah, the they're all pretty explicit about it. <laughs> they're very explicit about that. Yeah, people who claim the Civil War wasn't about slavery haven't read any of the documents. <laughs> um, but, um, but they split over this issue of of a slave code and the uh, and Lincoln, there were no Republicans in the deep South. So I know sometimes people say, well, they're, the Republicans weren't even on the ballot. Well, in the 1860s, people voted in public. There were, it wasn't a secret ballot. Hmm. And when, when you went to vote, you just asked for whatever party you were going to vote for. And they handed you a ticket as it was called and you'd deposit your ticket in the ballot box. Well, there were no Republicans in the Deep South because to be a Republican in the Deep South was to put your life at great peril. And that's why the Republicans got zero votes in the Deep South. There were just no Republicans there. And Lincoln did not campaign in 1860. It was seen as unseemly for presidential candidates to campaign for themselves. But Douglas actually violated that tradition. He did campaign for himself in 1860 and Douglas did campaign in the South. But by then, for most Southerners, Douglas was unacceptable because Douglas was clinging to popular sovereignty. And for defenders of slavery, that wasn't good enough anymore. Right, anything that reeked of compromise. It's sort of like Republicans today. Compromise means you do everything for us, but compromise doesn't mean I have to concede anything to you. So right. they just didn't yeah. like that he wanted an com actual compromise. Right. The, the analogy that Lincoln used in 1860 was it was like being held up by a robber and uh, he, he shoots you when, when you don't give him what he wants and that's your fault for being shot. That, that's what he said. The, this is the way that Southerners were behaving because mm -hmm. they, were, they were demanding all of these concessions and if they didn't get them, they would destroy the Union and it would be the fault of the people who did not make the concessions to them. Luckily, that never happened again. <laughs> In our second episode about Abraham Lincoln, DB Comedy, our resident historians, and our special guest historian, Dr. Matthew Norman, 
We'll explore the presidency of Abraham Lincoln, his assassination, and his legacy, both historically and now. Make sure you're subscribed for part two of DB Comedy Presents the Electables, President 16, Abraham Lincoln. DB Comedy Presents the Electables. This episode's sketches were written and produced by Gina Pocola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. This episode's sketches were performed by Sandy Bykowski, Brad Davidson, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's website, dbcomedy.com, or DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to like. Don't forget to share.